We have been trying throughout this month to make sense of this cultural climate in which we find ourselves today. Many of us are feeling like we've entered a a new and not very helpful season in the American public discourse. It feels to many of us like uh, division and demonization and diatribe have become the new normal. They've become our way of working out our differences. And we're concerned that it threatens our ability to function effectively as a nation any longer. I was in Connecticut this past week campaigning for my father who's seeking re-election to the Connecticut State Senate and had a chance to talk with all kinds of uh, individual voters there from both sides of the aisle. I thought maybe what I was experiencing was an Illinois thing. But even there on the East Coast, people are feeling the same thing, that this is just out of control now, that, it, that something has to turn, that we'll never be able to solve the problems that we're facing unless we can find a greater sense of concord in the pursuit of our national goals. The old song, United We Stand, has been increasingly replaced by a new anthem, I Can't Stand You. And this ought to concern all of us. A few weeks ago, I began this series by trying to look at some of the sociological and technological changes that have happened over the last 20 years that have been contributors to this culture of conflict. And then the week following that, last week, we looked at some of the psychological dynamics at work as people make their moral decisions and move through the world. We also examined the three ethical, major ethical worldviews or lenses through which people tend to come at their thinking about cultural and political uh, issues. And next week, we're going to talk about some very specific things that you and I can do to be part of a creative movement on these matters. But today, I want to complete the picture that I began last week by reflecting with you on what I believe are the moral foundations at the base of our struggles. If I were to return to the image we used last week, if all of us have a moral intuition that is like an elephant and a capacity for moral reasoning that is like the rider, and if the elephant is wearing trifocals through which it's looking at at the world through lenses of autonomy or community or divinity, the elephant is walking on a path through the jungle that is made up of these foundation stones. And I want to think with you about those moral values that the elephant is walking on, that that all of us, in a sense, are traveling on or toward. Long ago, the prophet Samuel of Israel wrote those words, the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. The foundations of the earth itself are the Lord's, and upon them he has set the world. Implicit in those words of the prophet is this idea that is shared by most people on earth throughout human history that there is a God who is the original builder of life. And that this God has set in place certain physical and moral foundations upon which everything rests. Even Atheists and agnostics will acknowledge the existence of certain physical and moral foundations to life which, if not respected, if not preserved, if not uh, aligned with in some way, 
results in the ultimate collapse of whatever is constructed in this life. Hence the question that gets voiced by the biblical psalmist speaking for all of us, believers and atheists alike, I think, when he asks, when the, right, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can they do? That's the question that I think is underlying today the passions that we're seeing from both the right and the left. The morally intuitive elephants inside of all of us are very worked up right now. We have been whipped uh, into almost a frenzy by the riders of religion and politics and uh, media alike. And whether we are looking at the world primarily through that autonomy lens or that community lens or that divinity lens, Many of us today are feeling like the foundations of a healthy life or society are imperiled. Many of us across the political spectrum are feeling like those fundamentals are being destroyed, being lost in our time. And there are legitimate causes for concern there. But before we rush to decide in our panic and concern about these things, that the other side, those other people out there who don't think, who don't vote, who don't walk like I do through the world, before we decide that they are to blame so much that we need to pummel them to death, before we decide to do that, let's step back and take a deep breath and really think about what it is we're fighting for and fighting over, and fighting about. In his extraordinary book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Divide Over Religion and Politics, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt contends that underlying the three major ethical worldviews that we studied last week of autonomy and community and divinity, underlying those are a set of even more fundamental, foundational moral values, six of them to be precise. Height has conducted hundreds of thousands of interviews all across the world. He has studied history, drawn on traditions from many different lands and times, and discovered six major moral foundations common to virtually every culture at every time in any place. Hate is not a religious man, but if ever there was empirical evidence of a common creator who has stamped the image of his character into people in every time and place, It is the existence of these basic moral intuitions in everybody that provides that evidence, I think. Today, I want to look very briefly with you at each of those moral foundations. I want to think with you about what uh, they're saying, what, how they're reflected in our time, what, where they're reflected in the scriptures teaching, and why all of this matters, why it so much matters. The first moral intuition that is embedded in human nature is the impulse to care for people in the face of real or potential harm. Every mom in the room gets this. 
Uh, I was just chatting yesterday with a, a relative of mine, just had a brand new baby, and she said, I had no idea. I mean, I thought I was a compassionate person. I had no idea. As soon as I saw that baby, everything in me wanted to rush to protect that child. I will die for that child. I didn't know I had this in me. All of us have it in us, this passion to care for those who are threatened in the face of real or potential harm. For some of us, that is what drives our passion to care for the unborn baby or to care for the wounded war veteran. For others of us, this is what drives us to care for the urban poor or for the immigrant child. We just sense, even though we may differ on a lot of political policy matters, that we're supposed to care for the victims. We're supposed to care for the vulnerable ones. We're supposed to care for those who can't bootstrap themselves, who cannot help themselves without somebody stepping in to lend a hand in some way. Jesus declares how God himself is the originator of this impulse. How important care is to God himself. Jesus describes it famously in his parable of the sheep and the goats recorded in Matthew 25 when he says, I was hungry and thirsty and you gave me something to eat or drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick or I was in prison and you cared for me. You visited me. Whatever he said you do or do not do for one of the least of these people who needs help, who needs care, whatever you do or do not do, you do or do not do for me. That's how much I identify with those who need care. Talk to any Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Green Party person long enough and you will find the foundation of care driving them in some significant way. The second moral foundation at play in our disputes today is the value of liberty. Of liberty. Only where sin has badly blinded someone, turned them into a despot or an unfeeling person entirely, does somebody not want to see basic human rights respected and basic human freedoms extended. However they vote, They care about these things. We all believe that people should be released from unjust bondage and should be relieved from undue burdens. Now, now we may differ on whether forbidding somebody from carrying an AK-47 is a violation of their basic human rights. We may have differing opinions on whether a particular Legislative measure constitutes oppression. But all of us are united in being for liberty and against oppression. And we stand with Jesus there. Jesus, who in his very first public address said in the synagogue at Nazareth, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and release for the oppressed. Alongside of the moral foundation of care and liberty is the foundation of fairness. 
fairness matters to everybody, too. Some are incensed these days on the right because they feel that the makers are being sucked dry by the takers. You probably have heard some of that rhetoric in recent days. They have a sense that there are people out there who are working very, very hard to build businesses and to establish institutions. And along come all of these other people that just want to live off the strength. They're like, they're like people who are just cutting off little pieces of the golden cow, ignoring the fact that eventually the cow can produce no milk if they do this. Some feel that this is desperately unfair and unwise. And then there are others on the other side of the aisle who feel that these makers are the takers. That these, that these makers have taken too much. They've grown so accustomed to so much privilege and oppor- that they ignored those who, who, who do not have, who need help, who, who, who need access to resources. They feel that they're not paying the fair share of their due for all with which they have been blessed. And the little guy is struggling. And wherever you may be on that particular continuum of vantage points. Maybe you hold a much more moderate view. I hope you do. But wherever you may be, it is this sense that some people are cheating out there that works us up. (laughs) Whether it's the lazy, those who cheat us by their laziness, or the powerful, those who cheat us by, by having all the advantages and not giving access to others. We think that everybody ought to have fair opportunity. Everybody ought to have fair reward from their labor. And there again, this idea comes from God himself. The Bible says if a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will always be secure. It is the responsibility of leaders to be concerned with fairness, especially for the helpless, for the poor. The Lord secures justice for the poor, and he upholds the cause of the needy. That should please many of the people on the left side of the aisle. But there are also passages that make it clear that fairness is about more than that in the Bible. If a man will not work, he shall not eat, the Bible says. It would not be fair if he's not willing to put in some effort. He should not be just handed stuff. A man reaps what he sows. The worker deserves his wages. That should please some people who look at it from another angle. Somewhere in this balance between charity and responsibility, fairness lies. And we must continually struggle to find that line. The fourth of the six moral foundations found the world over is the value of loyalty. By that I mean loyalty to a group. Loyalty to your group. Somebody has observed that human beings are groupish creatures. Even though increasingly autonomy is a value for us, groupishness never leaves us. We are pack animals. We find identity and security in belonging to a tribe of one kind or another. We rise to defend our tribe against threats and competitors, don't we? I mean, you just watched the Rams score a touchdown today. 
you'll see the surging of our tribe to their feet, right? We're, we, we rise to defend our tribe. We'll be loyal to our clique or our family or our team or our party or our sorority or our platoon, even if it's against our immediate self-interest to be loyal to them. We will hang in there with them. We'll deny ourselves for them. Some have even been known to lay down their life for their friends, says Jesus. Those on the right and left today are fighting over groups. Which group matters most? Which group should get more opportunity or privilege? Which group is being forgotten or devalued? Should our greatest focus today be on the welfare of our national group? Or should it be on the wider community of man, that large group? Should we focus on the development of jobs for our worker group here? Or should we focus more on the development of a global economy that lifts the larger group of humanity? Where should we prioritize? Is the arrival of many more different kinds of ethnic groups on our soil bad for this group, my group, Or is it part of God's plan to strengthen the whole group? These are complicated matters. It's hard to see straight or together on these things. And sometimes the ties of loyalty that bind us also blind us. Right? We see things so much from the vantage point of what's in it for me and my group that we miss out on the value of the thriving of many groups. But this basic capacity for commitment to others that exists in spite of our tendency in our groupishness to become violent towards those that threaten us, this basic orientation towards binding together in communities is one of the most beautiful things about us. It's, it, it's, it's part of what the triune God has in mind to reflect his own nature. Though there are many of us, writes the Apostle Paul, we're one body in Christ, and individually we belong to each other. Don't let loyalty and faithfulness leave you, pleads the writer of Proverbs. Let's work for the good of all, says St. Paul to the Galatians, and especially for those in the household of faith. Let's keep in mind the big group and also really cherish our own household that small group. You see the balance there again? Alongside of these other moral foundations lies the value of authority. Authority. Now, that value is getting harder and harder to find in people as the years go by, as more and more of us are looking through that lens of autonomy, uh, of my concern and my agenda. It's harder and harder to get people to see authority as a good thing. It erodes every time we see authority abused by a leader of any kind. We lose that value, the sense of its significance. But but deep within many of us lies this respect nonetheless for the role that proper authority plays, for the role that proper hierarchies play in ordering society, in cultivating virtue, and in protecting the weak. How many of us in this room, I wonder, if I brought a microphone out and just went down the seats, could tell the story of somebody that we knew once in the hierarchy above us, an employer, a coach, a mentor of some kind, 
who was uniquely positioned to do us some good and helped us up and taught us something or whacked us upside the head in the way we needed or, or a little lower down in order to get us moving and it changed our life for the better. How many of us have experienced the value of authority in our lives? How many of us remember those firefighters and those policemen that rushed into the burning buildings, into the skyscrapers of 9-11 against every human impulse? They would never have done it had it not been for the power of discipline and authority that had trained them for exactly that task. How many of us, even in our kvetching about the size and the scope of government, and I understand why we kvetch about this, how many of us are also grateful that because of government there are roads and there are Medicare and there is uh, national defense? Authority is one of the fundamental elements of the fabric of life as God intends it. That's why he says in Exodus, honor your father and mother. It's in the Ten Commandments so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Why should you respect the authority? Because it will bring you blessing. You'll be able to. If you follow this authority, it will, it will tend to your benefit. Or children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Or everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities For these authorities that exist have been established by God. Friends, in our passion for autonomy, there still remains a need for wise authority at many, many levels of society. And our prayer ought not to be to cast off all authority, but to have people worthy of exercising this creative role for the most number. Of people. The final moral foundation I want to touch on today is the moral value of sanctity. Of sanctity. Simply put, sanctity is the moral intuition that some things are sacred, some things are holy, they are set apart, they are pure, they're not meant to be degraded. They're meant to be kept as they are. In God's word, we read, Be holy because I, your God, am holy. Keep yourself pure, writes the apostle. Do not give dogs what is sacred, says Jesus. Do not throw your pearls, your valuable pearls, to pigs. The Bible supplies a long list of sacred things. Human life, Sabbath time, the covenant of marriage, the innocence of children, the creation God has called us to steward among them. Many of our struggles today are fights over what is really sacred, what what needs to be left untouched, what needs to be held as it is, what needs to be reverenced in this way? And, and some, some people today feel that we just need to widen that circle. And in, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe we should be embracing the American flag as sacred. Maybe we should be hallowing other kinds of marriage as sacred. These are the debates that are going on in our time. And because we've got really strong things uh, feelings around sanctity issues. I mean, we've got feelings of repugnance 
and feelings of just almost rabid protectiveness around sanctity issues. And because intuitions about care and fairness also play into these decisions, sanctity issues are especially intense and difficult. And, and, and it's hard to talk about them. But we need to talk about them. Folks, if we, if we can't talk as a people about what is sacred and figure out a, a sense of that, if we can't talk about the nature of authority and how it should be exercised, if, if we can't be deliberating together a, a, about loyalty and who deserves it and, 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 and about fairness and, and liberty and, and care, if we can't talk about these things, then we can't talk about anything important. Nowadays, all of the talk about these things is driving us to distraction and division. Uh, many, many people believe that, that, that ultimately the, the others that we're meeting are, are, are hate these things, when in reality they simply love these things from a different angle than we do. I've charted out for you some of the linkages I see between these fundamental moral values and the, some of the many debates and policy questions of our time. I've given you a handout as you came in today. It's on our website for those who want to get it online that will help you see that it's these values that underlie the struggles of our time. Back in the 5th century A.D., the great bishop of Hippo, Augustine, wrote these words. A people is a multitudinous assemblage of rational beings united by concord regarding loved things held in common. If we wish to discern the character of any given people, we simply have to investigate what it loves. Surely it is a better or worse people as it is united in loving better or worse things. I don't want to be naive and pretend that sin and selfishness and self-interest don't taint the hearts of individuals and the whole discussion. But what I really want to underline today is that basically the struggles of these times come because we have certain loved things in common as a people. We all care about these values to a lesser or greater extent. We're being driven all the time to view other people who don't see it the way we do as immoral people or evil people. But if you talk with them long enough, you'll find that somebody of a different political persuasion than you has these values too, these love things. And it's because of that that their elephant and their rider are charging in the direction that they are. Start listening for those passions. Take that sheet home. And put it up on a... On a, on a on a mirror someplace, so you have in your mind. You're going to hear it through the debates. You're going to hear it in all the conversations, these values being uh, talked about in one way or another. I found in my own conversations that almost everyone that I meet cares for all six of these uh, moral values. You know, I'll talk to a, a conservative, and it's, it's the abortion issue. It just, they just feel that this is a, such a violation of the sanctity of life. And I'll, I'll talk to a, a, a liberal person, and they'll, they'll be so concerned about the creation, how we're not caring for the environment, the sanctity of this amazing gift we've been given, and we're degrading it left and right. They're, they're joined by these loved things. 
that we hold in common. I have found as well, and even more serious researchers than I have documented this, that there is a tendency, even though we care for all of these things, for us to dwell on one end of that spray of six depending on our political orientation. It, I, th- I think, has been well documented by research that those on the liberal end of the scale tend to identify more with the leftmost, the care, the liberty, the fairness values. Uh, it's not that they disregard the... It's simply those first three are especially meaningful, important to them. Our heart beats for these things. While conservatives, particularly in a culture that has... has a lot of focus on these values, feel the necessity of raising up the significance of the values on the right end of the political spectrum or the value spectrum uh, because they fear those are being lost. I encourage you to seek out somebody who comes from the other side of the aisle from you. I encourage you to ask them which of those moral values really makes their heart beat fast. Which of those values do they sense are being lost in our time or could help to renew our society if we could find a way of championing them together? Then find out what they believe are the values of your side of the spectrum and feel free to set them straight. If they don't see that you care for these things too, share your heart honestly with them. Back in the year 1521, Martin Luther, the great German theologian, was on trial for his life. He stood before what was called the Diet of Worms. No, that wasn't a restaurant. Uh, It was a court of the Catholic Church. And he was being tried for disloyalty to his party. He'd been raised according to a certain party line, a certain set of doctrines and beliefs, a certain set of moral foundations. But Luther had spent some time really reading the Bible, studying page by page what it taught, and he discovered that the vision of God was broader than he'd been instructed. And so standing before the great court at peril of his own life, Luther is reputed to have made a declaration that helped to fuel the reformation of Europe and eventually led to even the development of the church in these United States. And this is what Luther said, Here I stand. Here I stand. On the rock of the scriptures. On the breadth of its foundations. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Brothers and sisters... Now is our time to stand as followers of Jesus Christ. Now is a time to develop the courage of the full biblical counsel and its convictions and declare that we must be united in pursuing this broad kingdom agenda against any pressure from any political party to tell us that only these little val- this set of values and those alone really, really matter. If you were a follower of Jesus first, above a partisan, then your ultimate agenda is that of God's kingdom. You will be concerned to see that your personal life and our public life is built on all of those moral foundations. For Jesus has said, therefore, 
everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. We are a nation divided, a house divided today, because we have been unable to see the breadth and the goodness of the great foundations upon which we have been built. God and his word are this rock on which the foundation of any great society rests. May we have the wisdom and the discipline to stand there and to seek his vision with grace and truth for our nation and its people above all else. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, fill us with the wisdom of your word, with the grace of your character, that we may truly see the foundations, build our lives upon them, and lead forth, Lord, into this next season of our country's life with a better spirit and way. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.